Our sermon text this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll start out with the first through the third verse and then work our way to the 31st through 37th. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for the quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Nevertheless, in their great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and you have acted wickedly. We have acted wickedly. wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you have given them, in large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us before our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and they are in great distress. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bree. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm very happy to be worshiping with y'all today, and I'm honored to be bringing us to the Word of God as well. Just in case you wonder why I may smile a lot during the sermon, uh, last night I uh, asked my amazing girlfriend to marry me, and she's my fiance now. So, um, so you just see me randomly break out in smiles or stare longingly off in that direction you know why <laughs> uh so today we are uh diving into nehemiah 7 through 10 yeah, the central chapter for our time will be um, chapters 8 and 9 in these chapters we see a repentant people before a holy god and these chapters we're going to see also a big contrast between the holy and the good god and the people between the mercies of god and the behaviors of the people and then they come and repentant. And these, cha- these chapters are about the relationship between God and God's people. As Bree just led us uh, in reading through chapter 9, we see that Israel gathers, they are fasting, they're in sackcloth and ashes, they're penitent, they're humbled. So why are they so humbled? Like wh- what leads them to such an amazing act of corporate repentance? So before we dive into chapter 9, we're going to take a moment to look at the context and so we're going to take a look real quick at the roadmap we have together. I'm not sure if the clicker's working. Uh, next slide. Thank you, Tessine. Uh, oh, did I go too far? There we go. Roadmap. All right. So first we're going to take a look uh, at Nehemiah 7 and the restoration of the wall. Um, and we're going to see why that's important. Second, we're going to take a look at Israel's response to the word of God. This is a moment of revival and it begins with them seeking the word of God. Thirdly, we're going to see Israel repent and confess their sins before God. And fourth, We're going to look at how Israel remembers God's mercies towards them and their forefathers. 
in the midst of their rebellion. And fifth, we're going to look at how Israel recommits themselves to God and his covenant. So over all of these sections, we're going to see the main point, uh, next slide to scene, is that um, God's people are a repenting people. This is a theme that we're going to see through these uh, four chapters, and we're going to see that contrast of the great, merciful, good, holy God and his people that are coming before him. So before we dive deeper into Nehemiah 7, would you all just take a moment to, to pray with me? Lord God, we love you. We are a people that are like Israel. We are caught up in the worries of our day, the fears and uh, the world around us. God, would you help us to come before you humbly? Would you help us to be a praying people, a people of the word, a people who are honest before you and who seek to follow you? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Nehemiah, um, oh, that's that's forward. It's not down is forward, up is backwards. That's kind of counterintuitive. Anyway, um, as we uh, continue with our time to get, we're gonna today we're gonna start with uh, Nehemiah seven, uh, starting with verse one. Now we read, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and Levites had been appointed. I'm just gonna pause right there. So we've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah as a church. Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of the people of God returning from exile into the land that was promised to them. And the wall is now built. So we're going to just pause here for a moment. Just This is extremely important and extremely significant. So why is it important that the wall is built? For a couple of reasons. Um, in Nehemiah, we just read a little bit of Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah came, one of the main reasons was because the wall was in disarray. This was one of his main tasks. The, this big task is complete. And the second, uh, we're going to see this uh, real quick. We're going to jump backwards to Nehemiah 1. We're going to look at Nehemiah 1, uh, verse 2 through verse 4. And so we read here, uh, so Nehemiah, so he is uh, cupbearer to the king in Persia, and uh, he hears the distress, and we read in verse 2, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah, the namesake of this book, he hears of the trouble and shame that Israel is in. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he says they're being derided by the nations. The enemies of God look at Israel and toward their city, and they were mocking the people of God. So, again, why is it important that the wall is being completed? Because in this time in history, the people of God were associated with a nation, and a nation needs a city. What kind of nation doesn't have a capital city, a place where leaders can gather, where laws are made, where justice is done? Israel's city was in complete disarray, the walls were down, and they were in shame, derision. Why did they lose their city? This is also important to know the significance of the wall being completed. So Nehemiah, we see in uh, verses 5 through 8, uh, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, we read uh, a bit of this just now. Uh, if you will read with me together. And I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with, the, uh, with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel and your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. I have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
Remember, this is verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. So on the one hand, we see two real main characters in this prayer. We have God and his people. God, he calls them the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. And then Israel, your servants. These are the people of God. God takes sin seriously. And so because God takes sin seriously, he keeps his word. He's faithful to his word. He scatters his people. The nation lost their city. But if we remember again, Nehemiah's prayer, verse 9, God does not leave Israel in this state of this wandering and this exile. Nehemiah 1.9 in his prayer, he says, um, this is from God's perspective. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the outermost parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So think about this in light of Nehemiah 7. So the wall is completed. Nehemiah was praying earnestly for the sake of his people in distress, seeing that they were in danger. And now in Nehemiah 7, we see God being faithful. We see God answering Nehemiah's prayer. I just, does anyone else get excited when you hear about answered prayer? Like if you pray for someone, you hear God did something. Like my, my family has a saying that we are living in answered prayer. Uh, my dad used to say that a lot. Another main, so the main point of our sermon today is that God's people are repentant people. Another main point could be that God's people are a praying people. God was go, so good in the book of Nehemiah that he gave us the prayer in chapter one so that we could see in chapter seven that it wasn't just God doing, uh, being faithful, but it was God also answering Nehemiah's prayer. So I just want comments on that. The completion of the wall is extremely important because God has proven himself to be faithful. And so now in chapter seven, we see that the wall is done. The work is complete. So is this just mission accomplished? You know, everyone can just go home. Is Nehemiah, you know, he finished building the wall. Uh, as you can see, if you have your Bibles, there's six more chapters of Nehemiah. So there's more that's going to be done here. At the end of Nehemiah 1.9, we see God says that I will make my name dwells there. And we're going to see God fulfill that too here in the coming chapters. So now we're going to see, as you go into chapter eight, the response of the people to God's word. So the walls are done, but the people know that the walls aren't enough. The temple was complete, but the walls in the temple weren't enough for the people. Like ancient Judah, they had the temple, they had the walls but they were still scattered to the nations. What the people need, they need God himself. And we see that in chapter eight, verse one, we see the people come to Ezra and we read together in eight one, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that God had commanded to Israel. So here we see the people coming and recognizing that their need was not just for safety in a wall, their need not, was not just for a temple where the priests would do their thing. They came to Ezra and they said, we need the word of God. So it says all people gathered as one man. It's been about a hundred years since the first exiles returned to the land with the Zerubbabel. We read that in Ezra. It's been about 13 years since Ezra came back to the land. It's been a couple of months since Nehemiah arrived. At this point, the assembly of all the exiles and the Jews in the land is probably around 100,000 people. And they gather as one man together to sit under the teaching of the word of God. 
chapter eight is really important. As we see, like the people of God are a repenting people. The people of God are a praying people. We also see that the people of God are the people of the word. One definition of sin um, we see in 1 John 3, 4, it gives a definition that sin is lawlessness. The people of God recognize that they didn't just need the temple and the walls. They had a problem. Their problem was sin. And sin, the Bible tells us, comes from law, is a, a, one of the definitions is lawlessness. The people of God had lost sight of the law. First John tells us sin is lawlessness. These people, whether by their own hand or by the, the actions of their forefathers, they had lost sight of the law of God. They had lost sight and they become lawless and they sinned greatly before God. Their leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah, had previously, previously been calling the people to repent. And now they come to Ezra and Nehemiah to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded. And I just want to commend that this is right and good. When we see our own brokenness, we should run to God and his word. I can't praise enough the desire of Israel to come before God and to open his word together. So we continue the story with Ezra verses two for, or Nehemiah verses two through three. And then six through eight. So two through three, uh, apologies if that's too small. Verses two through three, we read. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. And they read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday and the presence of men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Picking up at verse six, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sharebai, Jamin, Akub, Shevatai, Hodai, Mesatai, Mes a lot of complicated names. The Levites helped the people to understand the law. Somebody gave me advice once, just you know, say it confidently and quickly and just keep going. So um so the Levites, the priests come together to help the people to understand the law. And while the people remained in their places, they read from the book of the law of God clearly and they gave sense so the people understood the reading. So the people of God, as they are coming, like I mentioned, these chapters are about dealing with the broken relationship between the people of God and God. And as they come, we read that they are attentive, that they, um, in verse four, all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And towards the end, we see that the Levites that this is not just being talked at. Like uh, a common, like, you know, negative stereotype in churches, you just go and get talked at. I hope that that's not our church. I mean, that, that can be the tendency of some people when you're being uh, preached to, to just like the words can just flow over you. Now, the people were attentive, they were listening, and they wanted to come. And not only were the people wanting, but the priests came and they gave understanding. This is like an Old Testament like example of expository preaching, which is awesome. Not just because I'm preaching, but because the preaching is meant to help them understand. And that understanding leads to the response that we see of the people and their revival and then their repentance. A common way that we think about the, that we can think about the lost, they're teaching the law of, of Moses. Uh, there's this description of the threefold uses of the law. The first way that we can think about the law is that it helps us to understand what's right. It shows us what's good, what's true, what's beautiful. It shows us what's wrong, that which is evil to abstain from. And it can also show us that we are sinners and that we need a savior. So as they're going through the law, perhaps, you know, it's very likely they talk through the 10 commandments. The first of the 10 commandments is very simply, you shall have no other gods. As we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah, we've seen that they've wrestled with this commandment. They've 
Uh, they've uh, you know, entered into relationships with people that would lead them away from worshiping the true God. They have worshiped and they have sought for gain rather than honoring God. There's a broken relationship between them and God and the law is showing them the goodness of God, the sinfulness of, of, of sin and their need, therefore, of a savior to deliver them. We see the people coming and we, at, we can see their reaction to the law being taught. The first reaction of the people to the law is grief and mourning. We read this in uh, verse 9. We read, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. One commentator I've read uh, was speaking that, like, these are, these are Jewish people in ancient Israel. They probably had heard the law or parts of the law many times over their life. But it's like how many people when they come, say today, when they come to Jesus, they hear the gospel dozens or even hundreds of times, but it just passes over them. But then there's a moment that there's kind of this divine encounter where you, the gospel connects and makes sense. And in that moment that Jesus is seen as worthy and valuable and worthy of worship. This is a similar moment that these people, maybe they've heard echoes of the law their whole life, but here they're coming, they are listening, they're understanding, and they're cut to the core and they weep as they hear the words of the Lord. One, another commentator I read put it this way. So they're, they're weeping. And we see Ezra and Nehemiah like try to comfort the people, don't mourn or weep. Uh, the commentator read said that they see their sin, which is correct, but they are failing to see God's mercy and grace. The word of God not only shines a light on the heart of sinners, but also it points to God who is ready to forgive the person who repents their sin. Leaders who expound God's word with integrity will make sure that people know the entirety of the, of the message. Does that, do you resonate with Israel at all with this? Are you more prone to see your sin than God's mercy and grace? I hope this, this story is encouraging. So as you read the, the word of, the God, of God, as you come before him, I hope that you do see yourself rightly, but then I hope that you also see God rightly in his grace and his mercy. Um, going to continue on. Most li- it's very likely that the people that Ezra taught them from Exodus 34, again, they're going through the whole law of the law of God. That includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of your Bible. And in there, in Exodus, we see good news proclaimed from God himself. God says to Moses, the, or this, this is God speaking to, to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and children's children to the fir- third and fourth generation. So Israel, they're focusing on the end of that, but they're perhaps forgetting the first part. Remember that the Lord, the Lord, he is a God merciful and gracious. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, as they are comforting the people, we read through um, uh, uh, verses 10 and 11 of chapter eight. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So again, like in chapter eight, I believe the main point is that the people of God are the people of the word. They are coming and the word leads to conviction of sin. It leads to joy and it leads to worship. This is just, if you, if you know the history of Israel, this is an amazing, amazing moment in the history of Israel that for a thousand years, Israel's gone through cycles. We're going to read about that a bit in chapter nine, cycles of rebellion and then God's mercy pulling them back towards him. But then they rebel. And here we see the entire people of God come rejoice in a unified way. Man, God loves when people, God loves it when his people are unified. God loves it when his people worship him. This is, I think this is a really encouraging, encouraging verses for us. Um, I will also comment like a common picture of the God of God is that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. And then the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This God who um, in, in Exodus said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That's the same God as Jesus. That is the same God of the New Testament. God's people are repenting, but in our repentance, they need to not forget who God is, that he is also merciful and gracious. So as we look at this contrast between the holy God and the unholy people, we see this good news that God pardons the sinners. As we continue on, Ezra, uh, with chapter eight, really, I think key central verse for us just to, to look at as like the effects of the word. And they, all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words of the Lord declared to them. Um, yeah. So from here, we see Israel and the Feast of Booths celebrated. They don't just have a inward reaction to the Lord, but this action or this transformation of the word of God to them leads to obedience. We see briefly, we're not going to read through, but the Feast of Booths was celebrated in chapter eight. This is something that wasn't done for almost a thousand years. The people of God just neglected this habit, but they read the word of God, this prescription for them to be, uh, to put together booths on the rooftops or out in, the, in, the, in their towns, and they do it. The word of God transforms and leads to obedience. And that's just, that's just really encouraging. So the next thing that we see in chapter nine, we're going to finally get back to chapter nine, where we first read, where we started our time. The people are coming before God and they are coming to continue their response in repentance and confession. We just celebrated yeah, October 31st for a lot of people that's Halloween. For some of us, it's also celebrating Martin Luther. He nailed his uh, 95 theses. In 1517, the first of his theses, Martin Luther said, when the Lord, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. Israel's history is one of rebellion after rebellion, rejection after rejection of God. These chapters are encouraging because we're seeing the people of God join in the chorus of saints through all the ages and repenting and coming before God humbly. So we read Nehemiah 1 through 3, um, as Bree read with us earlier. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for a quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So 
chapter 7, we see that the people of God are praying people. In chapter 8, we see that the people of God are people of the word. In chapter 8, we see the people of God are also a confessing people. We come before God and we confess. We do make a practice of this every Sunday at Table Rock, that we take a moment to confess our sins before God. And this is what a part of what Israel is doing. But confession also, we see in chapter 9, is more than just listing your sins to God. It is confession at its core is to speak truthfully in agreement with God about him and about yourself. The confession includes the, um, the list of sins, but it's not just like you're under an interrogation lie before God, just listing off everything you've done wrong. Confession is also acknowledging who God is, not just who you are, but who God is, and then therefore who you are in light of him. So when we confess, like we're going to see a little bit with Israel's confession, don't just confess your sins, but also confess the goodness of God in your life. We see a bit of that with uh, Nehemiah uh, 9.5. So we, we see uh, Nehemiah 9.4, the people come, or 9.3, I should say, they make confession and worship the Lord their God. We see beginning in verse 5 that they remember God's mercies. So in Nehemiah 9.5, we read, Then the Levites, uh, Jeshua, Kadamel, Benai, Hasbenai, Sherebiah, Hodai, Shebenai, Pethai, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So after they've made their private their, their confessions, they come. There's this beautiful call to worship. We're going to see in chapter 9, over and over, there's these statements of you. Israel's coming. They're saying to God, you have done these things. You are the Lord. You have made the heaven, uh, heaven of heavens. You preserve. You are the Lord. We see Israel coming and they retell in chapter 9 the history of the Old Testament. It's the most comprehensive retelling of the Old Testament within the Old Testament. And we see over and over God is shown to be faithful and Israel is shown to be sinful, but then God is shown to be merciful in response to their sin. So we're going to look together at a couple of sections here. Nehemiah starting 9.22 through 25. This is just a part of their confession. So Israel, as they come and they pray before the Lord, they say to God, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Shihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og and king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of the heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in, possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and rich land and they took possession of the houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. God is the one who gave these things, blessed them, brought them into the land, gave them all that they would need Nevertheless, verse 26, verse 26 yet? Yep, there we go. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and they cast your law behind their backs, and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. God sent prophets as they were rebelling, and they killed them. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies and made them suffer, and in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you've heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors and saved them from the hand of their enemies. 
But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and abandoned them, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your great mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. And they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, Sin against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a great and merciful God. So, we started today looking at like chapter seven, how they lost the land. This is them retelling why they lost their land. They're saying they're coming before God and they're acknowledging their own sin, the sins of their, of their forefathers, the sins that they have been committing. And they are saying God is sovereign. God is this good and good actor over them. So what do the what do the uh, sinful people do before a God like this? What do people do when they recognize me and my forefathers? We we can't we can't seem to keep it straight for longer than a generation. What do we do? Well, I think we see a piece of that in Nehemiah nine thirty two, which we read together earlier. Here we read: Now therefore, our great, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, princes, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria till this day. So what do they do when they see so clearly the contrast between the holy God and the unholy people? They come before God, they recognize he is who he is. He is the one that keeps covenant and steadfast love. And they. this is them essentially throwing themselves at the mercy of God that let not our hardship seem little to you. They're coming, they're saying, they're acknowledging their inability and they're coming to the God who is able. In verse 33, we read, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. And all God does, he is holy and he is righteous. Israel in this prayer of confession and repentance, they give this, this contrast we've been talking about between God and them and God is depicted as the hero. He's the one who saves, who sends saviors. And so they throw themselves at the mercy of the God, the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Israel is calling on God to be God, for God to continue to be righteous. We read just the continuing on verse 34. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. We continue on Nehemiah 36, uh, or 9 verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So this praying people, this people of the word, this confessing people, and this people now come and they remember their holy God. 
and they put themselves at God's mercy. And here, I think we see just, this is the beginning of the tone for the rest of the, the time period before Jesus comes to, to Israel. We see them come in, they say, God, you, we are slaves in our own land. These kings are over us and we need a deliverer. They recognize that they are, though God is faithful, this is not the triumphant restoration of the kingdom that they had initially hoped for. This is kind of the echoes we've talked about in our whole sermon series of how in Ezra and Nehemiah, this is like uh, the, the analogy was given that it's the false summit. It's the, this is the restoration, but then they recognize we're still slaves in this land. Can you feel the longing in those verses for God to do something? I know it's, it's pre-Thanksgiving, so if you'll forgive me, like there's a Christmas song that comes to mind. Don't worry, it's not Mariah Carey. Um, I know we're, so we're approaching our Advent season. My favorite Christmas song is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And in there we see verses of deep longing that I think resonated the, the kind of the echo, the spirit of Israel as they are saying, we are in this land, we are coming before God, we are slaves in our land, and we need God to be our deliverer. O come, come, Emmanuel. Just the, some of the verses go, O come, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns and lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, O King of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself the King of peace. Israel's not yet free. They're setting, the, they're coming back in the land. They're, they're seeking to be before their holy God in a right way. And now we see, as they have confessed their sins, now they are going to recommit themselves to the Lord. So we've seen that the people of God are a praying people. They're a people of the word. They're a confessing people. They remember the Lord. And now we see that they are the people of God are following people. So in the recommitment to God, Israel's they've been going through the Deuteronomy. They've been going through the law. There's a powerful con Deuteronomy, verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 19, that reads, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that your offspring may live. In light of who God is and in light of who Israel is, the people of God now come and they recommit themselves to following God to the covenant that God has placed. They see the goodness of God the goodness of God's covenant. They agree with God about their sins and their father's sin. They agree with God that God is righteous in his actions. And so they come and they recommit themselves as they, ha as they uh, begin to seek to follow God well. So we see three things that they commit to God. So this is going on into chapter 10. The first thing that we see them, so we see uh, a list here of uh, the people who came in to um, sign themselves on a sealed document to honor the Lord, to follow the Lord, and the uh, recommitment to the covenant. And in the obligations of the covenant, there's really three commitments that they make. The first one is to... Um, it's really ultimately a commitment to the first commandment. They commit to not intermarry. As Luke preached on a few weeks ago, uh, the, com the command to intermarry was not a racial command, but it was because in Deuteronomy, uh, the warning was given that if you marry people from foreign lands, they're going to lead you to worshiping other gods. And so in their commitment to uh, not, not marry these foreigners, they are committing to follow the first commandment. So we see that... Um, the first commandment, just in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So as Israel is sealing their covenant and their recommitment to God, they first start with the first commandment, and that's the right place to start. The second place is they commit um, to honoring the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. We see in Nehemiah 10, 31, uh, just a, a, a glimpse of that. And if the peoples of the land bring any goods or grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year 
and the extraction and uh, and the extraction of every debt. And so in here we see a recommitment to the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, and this is to um, again to establish their commitment to be a set apart people. Israel's not to, meant to be like every other nation around them. They're meant to be a people set apart and people that were different, people that honored the Lord, not honored themselves first or the or idols first. And so the second commandment is to, or the second commandment is to honor the Sabbath. And the third commandment they make is simply, we, the, it's really, there's a lot of uh, details they, they make, but really it's summarized in the final verse of chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of God. The temple was a place where sacrifices were made. It was where people came and met with God, and it was central to the spiritual life of Israel. By these three commitments, Israel seeking to, compl- seeking to complete their turn away from sin and towards God, at a glance, this is really, really encouraging. I say at a glance because Don's going to preach next week and we're going to see how Israel actually does in following up. You can probably guess. But we see really encouraging in these three chapters, the people have God answer their prayer and the completion of the wall. They come read the word. They come, they confess. They come and they commit themselves to following God. So, as we consider like the story of Israel, this is, I think, again, a really encouraging passage for us to see as Christians of what repentance looks like. We also see that they are waiting on their Savior. Israel, like the analogy, uh, a parable that really comes to mind for me is found in Luke 15. Israel is a lot like the prodigal son. They are the people who have wandered away from God. And as they turn back to God, again, they first, like the prodigal son, they come with sorrow, with sadness, but they, when God meets with them. God is merciful and gracious to them. And so friends, we are like Israel. We are people stained by sin. We stand before a holy God. And like Israel, we need God's mercy. That God's people are to be a repenting people. And so as we get to application, there's just a couple of things as we think through, like what was, what's some takeaways from Nehemiah 7 through 10? I think Nehemiah 7 through 10 really show a good picture of what biblical repentance looks like. So biblical repentance looks like turning to God, that in our sin, we can just wander, we can just become stiff-necked, but turn to God. That's just the first thing, is opening your heart to God, relationship to God, you know, is talk to God. Next is to hear the word of God. We see that in Nehemiah 8, that they hear the word of God. Next, they confess to God. They admit who they are and they confess who God is. They turn from sin at Nehemiah 10. And they we see in Nehemiah 32 that they trust in God. They throw themselves on God's mercy. And today we get to see a beautiful picture of what repentance looks like. That we uh, we won't be practicing communion today like we normally do uh, every week, but today we're going to be celebrating a beautiful thing of baptism. That baptism is a visual picture of what repentance looks like. Repentance in baptism is pictured as us dying with Christ and then rising to new life. And so as we um, continue forward as people, yeah, we should be a people who celebrate repentance, practices repentance, and honors the repentance that we see in others. So as we wrap up our time, I just want to encourage you to take heart that God is faithful, God is merciful, God is gracious. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for uh, your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who doesn't just sit and leave us in our sin, but a God who who acts, a God who does, a God who comes and saves, and ultimately in Christ, Lord, that you have come to deliver us from our sin, that you did not just leave Israel 
longing for a Savior, but that you came. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rick. And a big congratulations to you and the Miss Rachel Hooper. Uh, pumped for you. Thankful. Yeah, as, uh, as, as Rick was sharing, I just thought that was a, as a good word in summary as we think about just the, the regular rhythm of repentance. That's how no one relates to God in here apart from repentance. That's how you relate to him. And just as, as, as Rick, as you were walking through kind of that summation of repentance is, let me return to God. I'm so thankful. In repentance, I can return to God. I can turn from sin and then trust God as I walk forward. So thank you for that, brother. Really appreciate you. Well, as we transition into baptism and as we will walk outside after we watch a testimony and um, as Emily and, and Sarah will walk out here in a moment, just a couple of reminders about what baptism is. And, um, you know, one, one is, 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 is maybe some helpful hooks is that Baptism is a, is a sign and it's a seal. It's a sign. It's a sign to, to Emily. It's a sign to, to all of us of what Jesus has done, that, that water is often used in the Bible as judgment. It's this picture of judgment. What did God do? He flooded the world. Uh, so when we, when we think, as we watch Emily go back and be brought forward, what, what, what is that a sign of? Jesus has taken judgment for you that you don't have to take judgment. That's what he's done for you. He's a substitute for you, both in dying for you and then rising to life. And as, as you will follow him, those that trust in Christ follow him, his death counts for you and his life now becomes your life. And so remember, church, it's a, it's a sign. But we also believe it to be a seal. So much of the Christian life is, is right, this this these words and these realities, but we can't see them. We can't touch them. We don't taste them necessarily. But when we celebrate communion and baptism, they're touchable or they're tasteable. Like, like Emily can feel the water go over her as she's raised in and out of it. And it's supposed to be the seal. Remember who Jesus is and remember who he is for you. I love that God gives us these physical reminders of these spiritual realities. And so it's a seal to her. It's a sign to us. This act doesn't save Emily. This act, if you're thinking about it, won't save you. What saves you is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And this is an expression of that. And it's a sign and seal. And God graces us as we're involved in these practices, both you and Emily. So we're going to hear uh, an interview testimony of Emily and Sarah a couple, from a couple days ago, and then I will come and lead it.